0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Well, good morning. We're continuing, obviously, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are uh, kind of in the home stretch, if you will. We're in the last few chapters of this Gospel, and we've been here for a couple of years now, a little bit, of a couple of detours, but uh, nevertheless, if you've been with us, it's been uh, hopefully a good journey through the Gospel, but during our trek through the Gospel of Matthew, we've had to climb several mountains, if you will. Uh, In fact, the Gospel of Matthew has mountain peak moments throughout its narrative. Uh, I think back to the first mountain that we had to climb, which was uh, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the the most famous of the mountains, where we went through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We worked our way until we got to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus' glory and splendor came through before Peter, James, and John. And then most recently, we've ascended the Mount of Olives where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse and we, we learned about the, the last days according to Jesus. But now we have one more hill to climb. We have one more peak to reach and that is the Mount of Calvary. We are working our way outside of Jerusalem <clears throat> up to the hill known as Golgotha, known as Calvary, where we're going to set our minds, our hearts, our sights upon the cross upon the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. As we see here in verse, 20, or verse 1 of chapter 26, Matthew says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings. It's common throughout each of these mountaintop experiences, if we will, through the gospel, to, for Matthew to kind of transition and say, When Jesus had finished these sayings. But here we see that he's finished all these sayings. Sayings, And Matthew is tipping his hat to us by telling us that the formal time of Jesus' teaching has now concluded. And now we embark upon the event in which he's been preparing us for from the beginning of the gospel. Namely, that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so as we journey up this final hill, we're going to behold... And lay hold of the power of the cross. And we're going to see just as that soldier behold and beheld Christ as he was hung there crucified. And he said, truly this is the Son of God. And he was and he is the Son of God. And he, as the Son of God, he is to be worthy of our praise, worthy of our uh, adoration, worthy of our reverence. And so for our text this morning, we're going to see that that is true of him today. Worship is beautiful to Jesus, we will see. And not only is it beautiful, but it is commended by Jesus. Nothing else we do, brothers and sisters, is more necessary than to worship him. In fact, worship is the reason that Jesus has called us, for the Father is seeking true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so as true worshipers this morning, as we assemble as the saints gathered around on this Lord's Day, we are declaring that He is worthy of all praise and all honor and all our devotion. Furthermore, we're looking forward to that day, aren't we? We're looking forward to that day in which He returns, the Son of Man returns in the heavens. And we'll join the heavenly host in declaring, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is he who sits on the throne. Be blessing and honor and glory and might be to his name forever and ever and ever. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I want to appeal to us. I want to plead with us. I want to implore you that you cannot lose sight of his glory. You cannot lose sight of his splendor and his glory this morning. What a shame it would be to gather here and to leave and to say we did not behold him. What a shame it would be to gather in his name but not to praise his name. So I pray that we'll glory or we'll behold his glory as we see him this morning as our true Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb who has been delivered up for us. He is the Passover lamb who from the foundations of the world has been slain for our iniquities and who bears our sins in order that we might be declared righteous in him. It's no wonder in our passage this morning that worship is the highlight. Sandwiched between two plots against him is an extraordinary tale of worship But there's no other acceptable response to Jesus, as we'll see. No other acceptable response to Jesus as our Passover lamb, the sovereign, anointed, and sacrificial lamb who's delivered up for our salvation. Now, as we think about Jesus delivered up, handed over, betrayed, you may say, we should not think that he is somehow helplessly passive in all of this. No, we worship him because he is the sovereign lamb who has authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up again. And so I want to appeal to you, first of all this morning, to worship the sovereign lamb. As we come to our text, it's now Wednesday. If you remember, as I was detailing the days of the week where we are, uh, we've moved from the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We've made it to Monday, And Tuesday took us all the way through chapter 25. It's now Wednesday, brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, in two days, Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, he doesn't give much explanation right here. But here, Jesus does equate his life, his death, with the Passover that is coming though it won't be until Thursday evening, we'll look at next Sunday, but Jesus will make this connection explicit. But we are to understand that Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. We read in Exodus 12 that Moses instituted uh, the Passover uh, in the worship of Israel the night before God would deliver them out of Egypt. It preceded the 10th plague, if you're familiar, the 10th the and climactic and final plague that would come upon Egypt, whereby the Lord would come through and he would strike every firstborn in the land of Egypt, whether human or beast, he would kill them. However, in protection of his people and the coming judgment, he had told them that you were to take a lamb, every family or every group of families, if you could do that. Every family is to take a lamb, a male lamb, a a lamb without spot or wrinkle, without any blemish, and they were to slaughter that lamb, and they were to take the blood of that lamb and and put it on the lintel, and they were to put it on both doorposts so that that night when the Lord would come through Egypt and strike them with death of every firstborn, the blood on their doors would serve as a sign for them. And the Lord would pass over their home and no judgment would come upon them. Jesus says in two days another spotless lamb will be slain and judgment will pass over us. In two days it will be our Passover, Jesus says, because the sovereign lamb would be slain for us. This is remarkable, brothers and sisters, if you think about it. This is remarkable to consider the God's sovereign plan of redemption unfolding over the eons and over the ages. This is remarkable because it speaks of his sovereign plan of redemption. Jesus' death on the cross was not some tragic turn of events that caught him off guard. It did not catch him by surprise. Rather, it was the purpose for which he had come. And it was the climactic event of human history anticipated in the Old Testament scriptures. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when we come to verses 3 and 5, we must keep this in mind and and realize that Jesus is under control, that he is the sovereign Lamb in this scenario, not the religious leaders. If you go on to verse 3, we see, then the chief priests and the elders And the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. If you want, you can take a mental note there. If you're one who writes in your Bible, you might circle then. Then and only then, once Jesus has said two days and the Passover is coming, that they are able to plot his own murder. Then and only then were they able to act. Like the nations of Psalm 2 who assemble and take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, so these religious leaders have have gathered so that they can secretly, stealthily, by deceit, arrest him and kill him. But what they don't realize is that all their evil preparations are actually working out the details whereby the true Passover lamb is being prepared for slaughter. It is no by accident that the high priest is at the center of it all. Because as the Passover would come and and, and over 250,000 lambs would be slain during the Passover feast. All under the, 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 the authority and leadership of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at this time, he doesn't realize that he is in in a strange way of irony preparing the only sacrifice that matters. He's preparing the sovereign lamb. See what they meant for evil, God meant for our good. They're not ultimately in control despite appearances. They may think that they're gathering in secret, but Jesus has already said, in two days, the Passover is coming. They may think that they are in the safety of the confines of the palace. They may hold to the positions of highest authority, but they are not calling the shots. This becomes very evident in verse 5. It's interesting. They're so determined, but then they they say, but, 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 let it not be during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're trying to to plot and be calculated in all their actions. Jesus has already come in. It's only been a a couple of days since he has come through Jerusalem. He's already overturned the tables in the the temple. He he has taught boldly with the crowds watching him. And they see that the crowds have said hallelujah. And they have praised him and they have said, he is the prophet who's come from Nazareth. And they're they weary. Oh, we've got to do this secretly and stealthily. We can't do it during the feast while all these people are gathered here. And, and so they're making their plans and they're making their calculus. But despite their best efforts, their plan would be not to arrest him during the feast. But that's exactly when he'll be arrested. That's exactly when he will be killed because he's the sovereign lamb who's worthy of worship. Church family, it's passages like this that should remind us that despite appearances, despite what's going on in the world, despite how helpless you may feel, Jesus sits on the throne. It's, It's passages like this which remind us that he is the one who's in control of all of history. We are to look back, as as ancient Israel was encouraged, to look back to the exodus and remember God's mighty work of deliverance, so we look back to the greater exodus of the cross, the greater Passover lamb who was slain for us. And we remember that, that despite all the darkness that may lay over the land at this time, Jesus holds the whole world in his hands, that nothing is happening that was not ordained to happen. We can look back at God's mighty work of redemption through the cross, knowing that just as he was in control then, so he is in control now. And so for this reason, we're to worship and adore him because he's the sovereign Lord, but we're also to worship him as the anointed lamb. And so what we see declared about Jesus' lordship in, in these opening verses, we're now given direction in how to rightly respond to who he is how we are to rightly react to this fact that the Passover is coming, and we see here that we are to respond in worship. Now, Matthew provides a flashback. Notice he doesn't give a chronological marker. It's kind of ambiguous. Now, when Jesus is at Bethany, you know, we sometimes watch movies and then there's like, you know, a scene's happening, and then then it kind of does a flashback to another event that's going to give a greater sense of what is happening. Well, that's kind of what Matthew is doing here. Matthew provides a flashback actually to the previous Saturday. Bethany was the city right outside of Jerusalem. So when Jesus and his disciples are making their way towards Jerusalem before Palm Sunday, they arrive in Bethany. And Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. Now you might say, Chase, where where are you getting all that? Go to John 12, okay? John 12 gives a parallel account and tells us it was six days before the Passover. We don't know much about Simon, but presumably Jesus has healed him. He's Simon the leper, and, and maybe he's a significant figure at the church in this day, and so everybody else who's reading this maybe from that first century knew exactly who he was. But presumably, Jesus had healed him and now had stopped at his house on his way to Jerusalem. And Matthew includes this story at this point to lead us into worship. We're to worship Jesus because he's the sovereign Passover lamb, but also because he's the anointed suffering king worthy of all our devotion. And such devotion is beautifully illustrated as this woman comes and anoints Jesus' head with perfume. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who she is, doesn't give us a name who she is. Because Matthew is wanting to highlight not who she is, but what she has done. He's wanting to highlight the fact that she has done this incredible act of of worship. But our curiosity probably is, is scratching, and we want to find out who that is. Well, John 12 tells us this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. You might remember uh, Martha being a little upset with Mary because Martha's doing all the serving, but Mary's sitting and listening to Jesus. This is the, the same Mary. And in pointing out that she had poured this perfume on his head, we're reminded of the anointing that would be given to the kings of Israel. It's an interesting fact. The other text in in John emphasizes the, the perfume poured upon his feet. It's not that these are contradictory. It's just emphasizing two different pourings at the same event, if you will. And so Matthew is reminding us, and really we can think about the kingdom emphasis throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the rightful king, and here he is being coronated. Here he is being anointed. He is receiving the, the recognition that is due to his name. And so just as at the beginning of the Gospel, Jesus, as he's just a, a, a baby and a small child, is recognized to be the king of the Jews, but in obscurity. Here we are at the end of his ministry, at the house of a leper, the house of the weak, the house of the poor, and he's anointed as king. And Mary sees him as such, and as the rightful king, no expense was too costly for Mary to demonstrate her worship and her devotion to Jesus we're told in, in some of these other accounts of this, uh, of this um, event that the, the perfume that she broke out of this alabaster flask, which would have been like a stone flask and it would have no knob, if you will, like we have today, it was kind of a, a one and done uh, event. It might have been saved, honestly, to, to, to pour upon a loved one at their burial. We saw that this, this alabaster flask is estimated to be valued at one year's wage. So imagine, in just a moment, this, this perfume's gone faster than fireworks on the Fourth of July, you know? You know, people are burning those things up in just a minute. That's probably how the apostles started looking at this. You're going to waste this all and boom, one, one, one second here? One year wage. Mary's worship was so unrestrained that in the disciples' eyes, what they were, they saw this as wasteful, this is distasteful. They were were filled with indignation over what Mary had done. And so this act, I'm assuming even if we were there, we would maybe consider this to be rather irresponsible. Maybe, maybe there could have been a better way to invest your, your inheritance here than to pour it out all over Jesus? This would have been negligible, and this is exactly what the disciples said. I mean, Jesus has just taught them uh, rather forcefully that that when he comes back, are you the ones who fed me when I was hungry and clothed me when I was naked and visited me when I was sick? Are you the ones who have cared for me when I was in my my weakest state? And here this this woman has come, and she clearly doesn't know the value of of the kingdom, does she? least in the disciples' eyes. You have wasted your earthly treasure. Half of it's on the floor. Further, I imagine this event would have been rather awkward to be at the dinner table at this time, don't you think? You just want to pass pass the plate around and Mary comes out and Things get really weird. <laughs> it gets awkward. Mary pours this perfume all over Jesus' body and it begins to trickle down and, and she begins to just pour it all down, down to his feet. And as and it, it matters get worse, not only is she pouring out all this perfume, but then she begins to let her hair down and begin to wipe Jesus' body dry with her hair. And I'm sure she's doing this. The, the disciples, their jaws are dropped. She can hear the gasps. She can hear the grumbles as she pays tribute to her king. And yet, being troubled by them, she's not deterred in her worship, is she? Oh, that we would worship with such devotion, brothers and sisters. That we would not be so concerned by those who would trouble us. I mean, maybe you're like me. I'm, I was thinking about this text today. Oh, so many things to distract, right? So many things on our minds, so many curiosities, so many things to do. And, and, and maybe you even find yourself you know, just kind of wondering what's everybody else doing? And, and there can be an appropriate sense to that. But I wonder. What keeps us from being swept up in worship like this? Maybe not the exact same expression, but in a sense of full devotion. Were we be afraid that we would make things just a little too awkward? That people would think, man, I'm really getting into this, taking this a little too seriously? Well, notice that Mary's commended by Jesus, isn't she? She's commended by Jesus as Jesus rebukes the disciples. Jesus tells them, hey, hey guys, stop troubling her. Why are you bothering her? What she has done for me is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. See, genuine worship is the supreme service of Christians. What she has done is good. It's the most necessary thing for you as well, he says. You, and their, their excuse was, this could have been given to the poor. He's like, you know what? There's going to be plenty of time to do those things. There's not plenty of time to do this. See, genuine worship is the supreme service of the Christians. There are many other ministries to be done, right? Many things to be taken care of ministry to the poor, preaching. Visiting the sick, the hurting, but nothing can supplant worship. Nothing. I love what B.B. Warfield says. He says, there is no mistake more terrible than to suppose that activity in Christian work can take the place of depth of Christian affections. No greater tragedy, no more terrible of a thing that you would or me would, would supplant worship even with good things to do, even with good ministry, good service. It's interesting here. It's almost the same lesson that Mary was a part of with Martha at another time. Oh, you're busy with doing much serving, but you're not doing the, what is good to sit at my feet. Even now, I'm sure many of you are overwhelmed with many things. Your, your mind is busy with things to do. Maybe you think we are wasting time. Many in the world would look at us and say, why do you give up your Lord's your, your day, your Sunday, when we would call it the Lord's day? You're wasting your time. Nothing's getting accomplished here. But how often we think, oh, no, 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 we, we need to hurry. We need to get out of here. This is, this is not, this is not where, the, where the important thing is. Worship is what Jesus requires. And worship isn't deemed to be wor- wasteful. Jesus is to be worshiped because he's the anointed lamb, as we're seeing here. Jesus tells us that this act of Mary's devotion actually foreshadowed his burial. I I don't know if Mary understood the full implications of what she was doing, but in God's sovereign providence, even those who came to him, whether it was the the leper who needed to be cleansed or the blind who needed to to see, even in these acts, they were teaching moments to tell us about the power of the gospel. And here we see in her extravagant expression of devotion and worship that what she was doing was preparing the Passover lamb for burial. This is all about preparing the Passover lamb. Don't you see it? Everything is preparing, preparing, preparing. In fact, next week we'll even see now the disciples are to get prepared for the Passover. Jesus tells us this act of Mary's devotion foreshadowed his burial because this anointed king would defeat death by laying down his life for us. He would put death to death at the cross. And it is this act of worship that is commended to you and to me this morning, and commended to all, whoever, wherever this gospel is preached, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is expounded and my story is told, Mary is found here, and that is happening right now. Isn't that remarkable? We would think, oh, this great ministry to the poor might be the thing that is found here or some other great accomplishment made by the disciples. No, it was this act of devotion in a leper's home that is written down for all to hear and be commended to all that this is what is most necessary, your worship. Because if you do not worship, then what do you do? If you do not worship Jesus, what are you doing for him? While Mary's act of worship prepared Jesus' body for burial, it also prepared him for betrayal. Jesus would be now the sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter, and for this reason, too, he is worthy of our worship. While Matthew tells us that collectively the disciples were indignant over Mary's worship, for Judas, this was the last straw. This was it. It was this event that then leads. You see their 14th then. It's a logical then. This was the impetus. This is all before they even arrive at Jerusalem. Already Judas is thinking, I'm done with this guy. Because he values this. He values this weak woman pouring out and wasting perfume. Who does he think he is? He's had enough. Jesus, his weak style, his concern for that which is pointless, at the end of the day, would not get Judas what he really wanted. And so it was this moment that Judas was determined he'd side with the religious leaders and betray Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see a very important point here. When we allow ministry... Or, or let's just let's, let's expand it, a social cause. You got a cause that you're really impassioned about? Something that you think everybody else should be as impassioned about? Do you have that? We see here that if we allow a ministry or a cause, as good as it may be, to supplant our affections for Christ, we're in danger of going down the same road as Judas. I mean, that's what it is. Jesus isn't about the poor. So I'm done with him. Do you see it? He's not outraged over this like I am. So he's now my enemy. I see a lot of that going on in our world among Christians, a lot of division. We've experienced it even this church. I'm so impassioned by my cause that it overcomes any affections for Christ and his people. Beware, because this is the same path that Judas goes down, whose love grew cold, didn't it? And out of greed for his own cause, joined the world in opposing Christ. How many Christians are now just going and joining the world to oppose the church? Because the church doesn't do what they think the church should be doing. And what they failed to see is that the one thing that was necessary for them was worship. That's the one thing. That doesn't mean you don't do these things. It doesn't mean there aren't other ministries. But this is the one thing that you are to be passionate about. Full cell, whole devotion to is the worship of Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison. Even if you have that cause or that ministry, you want to lift up and make it the thing. Well, then it's no longer the thing. It's become the enemy. Well, it's his greed, Judas's. It leads him to go to the religious leaders. He joins those who gather and make counsel against the Lord and his anointed, and he comes to them, and he, you see his greedy offer. What will you give me if I deliver them to you? What will you give me? At the end of the day, it's greed, accolades, For Judas, it wasn't much. It was 30 pieces of silver. This is about a month's wage. About a month's wage. It also was the the, the price of a slave if you lost a slave, being reimbursed by 30 pieces of silver. There's more to this phrase that we need to pay attention to. One who's familiar maybe with the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, would be, Honed in on that that phrase, 30 pieces of silver. Because in Zechariah chapter 11, we're presented with the shepherd of Israel, a Messiah figure who's to come to his people and who is doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep. And guess what he's paid out with? 30 pieces of silver. What's going on here? Matthew doesn't dive too much into it. He'll he'll get there in chapter 27, and we'll come back to that text. But here's what I want you to see. Matthew is including this little detail now. He's going to expound it just a little bit later. Because he's reminding us of what was foretold by the prophets, that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. He'd be a betrayed Messiah. He'd be a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. And he'd be despised, he'd be rejected by men, and by his wounds, we would be healed. Judas's act of greed and selfish gain would be the instrument whereby Jesus would be handed over to the religious leaders. And so while they had planned, you remember, they'd planned not to kill him during the feast of Passover, well, Judas has made them an offer they can't refuse, just too good to pass out. And so, collectively, what they meant for evil, God meant for good, right? God meant to prepare the Passover lamb who'd be slain for you and for me and take away the sin of the world. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, where I want you to leave here today, thinking and knowing is that Jesus is worthy of your worship above all, because he's the sovereign lamb, he's the anointed lamb, And he's the sacrificial lamb slain for you. Let's pray. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Jesus, all the chorus of heaven, the myriads and thousands of thousands and heaven, cry out with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And one day, we too will join that chorus, but in a real sense, we already are. We're doing that now. We're doing that today as your sheep gathered around your throne. Though we cannot see you, we long for the day in which we will. When we will see you, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has conquered and the one who has the right to hold the scroll of the history of the world in his hand. Jesus, I pray for us. I pray that we would heed this example of Mary. Oh, that we would not be distracted by other things, even other causes, other ministries, other things that may impassion us may we behold your glory and that we would be devoted to you more than ever to worship because we know now today that out of everything, worship is what is required. Worship is the one thing that is necessary for us. And all these things will be added. If anyone here isn't a worshiper of you, O oh Lord, I pray that they have seen how glorious and how splendid and how worthy you are, that you are the one who lays down his life on his own accord, by his own authority. And we'll soon see that you raise it up on your own authority as well. And that you've done it so that anyone who comes to you, that just like Israel, who had the blood over their doorpost, if we come to you, judgment will pass over us because it has passed upon him the lamb who was slain. We pray these things in his name. Amen.